everybody, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience research podcast. Today is Thursday, October 10th, 2022. It's a special day for us because it's the day of our annual neuroscience symposium. The topic of our symposium this year is three-dimensional models of human cortical development, which, of course, means cortical organize. Is there another? I don't think so. So our panel today are the speakers in that symposium, each of which uh, spoke to us on some aspect of the use of human in vitro organoids to understand cortical development, specifically in humans. They are Jenny Shea from UTSA. Hi, Jenny. Glad to be here. Uh, Vanessa Nieto Estevez. Hi. Also from UTSA. Georgia Quadrato. Hi. From, ah, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> from uh, University of Southern California. Hi, Georgia. Hello. Hi. You can recognize me from. Uh, from my very strong Italian accent. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and Fikri Viri from Emory University. Hello. And I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. So today we spent the day talking about a wide variety of applications of organoids, the study of brain development and function. Of course, we can't visit every topic again now. But just to get started, I'd like to pose a very general question, but maybe a small but general question. <laughs> That'd be the best kind. Uh, Human cortical development takes years to complete, includes a lot of steps, a lot of which we did not discuss today. And a lot of the most classic questions about cortical development are not the questions that we address with, uh, with organoids. Uh, for example, axon guidance or synaptic target specificity of projection neurons. On the other hand, um, it's not been easy to study some other things in the classical models, like the genetic causes of cortex misformation or dysfunction, which seem to be better things for organoids. So uh, I wonder if I could ask you, as a group, to make some predictions about which aspects of cortical development we might hope to see successfully addressed uh, using the in vivo approach. And uh, Georgia, you described some uh, changes in radial glial development and the formation of the subventricular zone, which seem like maybe the earliest possible events we can imagine. And uh, maybe you could get us started. Are we best off studying the earliest possible things, or which should we aim for the whole thing? Yeah, uh, yeah, this is a great question. Certainly, um, organites are very well suited to study this very early aspect of human cortical development. Um, and also, I mean, they really provide an opportunity for this because we can we have access to um, human fetal tissue, but not at very early stages. So these very early stages can be captured only by with this in vitro culture. And um, yeah, and with this specifically, uh, we can look at uh, really early differentiation from the neural tube and so generation of early progenitor cells like radial glial cells and um, and then uh, the progeny of these cells early on. So we have seen that um, these uh, progenitor dynamics are very well recapitulated in organoids and these are very also reproducible. Um, and with this, I mean like um, progen uh, uh, proliferation of radial glial cells as well as differentiation or migration. These are aspects that have been very well characterized by multiple uh, groups in the field. And so certainly are the easiest um, to to characterize at the moment with the current models that we have. 
could we go beyond that? I mean, what's the next thing? What would be the next, once we think we have understood those very early steps, what would be our next move to use the in vitro system? Yeah, so, so certainly, um, as I said, this is important because there is no other way to study, right, this very early progenitors. We do not have access to this early tissue from, you know, ex vivo or from uh, fetal human tissue, we, can, we just can't. So this is, I think, very, very important. But then uh, in these organoids, we see the generation also of uh, neurons. And um, we uh, discussed during our symposium before that um, there is actually, these organoids have an, an accelerated development compared to the timeline of the of in vivo um, development of the cortex. And so I think we get to um, observe um, stages of human development that reach the early postnatal stages. And so this includes obviously the generation of multiple subtype, like in the case of the cortex of co uh, cortical neurons. So we actually are able to capture, to um, observe the generation of all the main subtype of cortical neurons, as well as also cortical glial cells in these organoids. And also we start to see generation of um, spontaneous network activity. So the aspect that in the current models are, this aspect of development that are currently recapitulated are um, the ones related to the generation of diversity of cell types of the cortex, as well as microcircuit activity. So these are um, aspects that do not um, developmental aspects that do not require um, other um, brain region necessarily or other extra uh, ectodermal tissues. So are sort of intrinsic properties of these stem cells. So we can see that they are recapitulated very well. For aspects like, for example, um, anatomical uh, features or uh, um, long range connectivity, we, these are not uh, generated by um, intrinsically by these cells. So we will need other approaches, tissue engineering approaches, or um, yeah, mostly, I guess, tissue engineering approaches that will help uh, substitute extra ectodermal tissues that normally are able to um, guide the differentiation of the cells and also the um, anatomy, a stereotypic anatomy in this organ, in, in, in vivo, in the, the structure of these brain cells. So one, I mean, it, it, you showed us some cerebellar cortex. It's cortex, so it's fair game, Yes, right? that's true. And the, and the, <laughs> this is what I told And yeah. yeah. the cerebellar uh, organoid, the granule cells formed in the external granular layer, as they should, in the, and that was very striking because that looked like, oh, that really looks like developing, developing the cerebellum. But that's a very early step. And then there's a much later step in which the granule cells migrate down to below the Purkinje cells. And that step we didn't see. Is it because we didn't wait long enough or is there some kind of limit on how far we could go with this with yeah. the development of this? Yeah, so we, uh, we have um, been able to see this uh, layering, early layering um, in, in our cerebellar organoids by addition of this SDF. SDF is usually released by the meninges, so it's again an extractodermal tissues that is needed. And we are, we've been able to mimic that by addition of SDF into the medium. Um, so as I mentioned too, I think that to keep this um, stereotypic anatomy, 
we need some other cell types that are extractodermal. And this includes uh, endothelial cells, blood vessels, microglial cells. These are all cells that guide um, the, um, really the migration of these neurons, um, as well as the uh, positioning. So I think, um, yeah, the, the reason why we don't see at later stages of, you know, this cerebellar organoids development, any uh, stereotypic architecture is they because they lack these all, all these other cell types. So uh, when we look at the surface of the organoid, we just naturally think, oh, that's like the peel surface. But it's not really like the peel surface. The peel surface has a bunch of stuff that isn't there on the organoid. Exactly. If I can add also something about what uh, George is saying, there is also a limitation in the size of the organoid because as the organoid grow, the nutrient cannot diffuse into the organoid. So that is also a limitation how far we can go right now with the organoid because there is a point that the organoid they cannot grow more. So it's not just wait longer just to see if we have more mature organoid. We also need to develop new ways or just to overcome that limitation in the diffusion of the nutrient, or even what nutrient maybe later on they need, as she was mentioning. So Jenny posed the question, could we grow a whole brain? <laughs> and the answer is, uh, maybe not without, but a lot more, <laughs> a lot more components. Yeah. So some people say, oh, we need to add blood vessel just to have yeah. something to deliver the, the nutrient. But it's not just the blood vessel, because in the body, we have a heart, right? To pump the blood. So we need like more complex. I was uh, one more thing on, on both great points that there are cell type specific requirements sometimes that, um, you know, neurons, as, uh, as, as Georgia put it, will probably need this cell extrinsic interregional uh, interactions to further develop. Uh, on the other hand, you know, others, you know, uh, have shown that glia, for example, sometimes all you need is time. If you were to wait, and you know, we are able to culture these organoids for long periods of time compared to mono, classical molecular cultures, we can keep them in culture 300, 400, 700 days. And if you were to wait that long, yeah, neurons don't do all that well, uh, but glia actually th thrive. And they do acquire these postnatal signatures. They're, they, they're functionally there as well as morphologically. Um, so, so there are nuances at that cell type specific level uh, in terms of how mature things can get in, this, in these models. So we do focus all the time on do you have all the different kind of neurons that you should have in your part of the brain? But maybe we should also be asking, do you have all the different kinds of glia that you would normally have in that part of the brain? And what's the answer to that? Are there all the dendrocytes? Are there microglia? Uh, um, yeah, I think uh, we have, we definitely get astrocytes. That's the main kind of glia that we see, at least in the cortical protocols. Um, we, we see, a subset of oligodendrocyte progenitors, and uh, but usually a minority of them differentiate into uh, uh, myelinating mature oligodendrocytes, um, and we, we do not have microglia. Uh, those come from a different germ layer, uh, and this is one of the main avenues, actually, that a lot of people are pursuing. Uh, uh, is is how to integrate microglia into some of these models. 
Um, but yeah, glia definitely is is a hugely important component to to any of this. Um, yeah. So if I could just follow up with a question, and I think we're talking about cell types, you know, wanting to get the right cell types and different cell types having different intrinsic versus extrinsic requirements. Mm -hmm. And from George's talk, you mentioned how even the same methods or the same recipes, you can get three types of organoids with more pure cell types, pure populations, and the other three don't have that. And I and I'm the assumption is you didn't do anything different. Mm -hmm. So do you think there's also sort of a randomness or stochastic nature of some some of these processes that's going on that maybe as because we're not you know during development it's very important to have gradients of mm -hmm. the signaling and but we are not able to completely recapitulate that either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is no, absolutely a fantastic question. We see that type of stochasticity, and um, I think one very important aspect in uh, um, regional patterning is adhesion. And so there are um, some, we cannot really control adhesion 100% how um, in these cultures. Um, th there are just um, very many variables that may affect that. Um, including how really the cells uh, cluster um, with each other. And, and so I think that, um, yeah, there is, um, th that's something that really increases the variability a lot. However, there are like in, in my talk, I showed like how we finally were able to bypass the type of um, heterogeneity. <clears throat> and that we reached that point by controlling very well, not only the morphogens, the small molecules that we add to pattern these organisms, but actually by also um, changing the base media composition. So we found, because sometimes we think about the base media as something that doesn't have any influence on the differentiation of these cells, but actually there are so many components that have an effect, and many of these we do not really know what are actually how they will affect the, the, um, the cell um, differentiation. So I think this is another message because we always focus on uh, small molecules and morphogens patterning, but the base media can also be very, very important to, you know, so it needs to be standardized for different type of uh, regional organoids. What is base media? I mean, what's actually in there? Yeah, uh, so, so we, you know, it depends by the type of protocol you use, but there may be some serum. Um, there is um, just... Um, so serum is a very heterogeneous thing. Yes. I mean, you could get one batch. It's got something different from another, and you probably exactly. worry about that. Yeah, there is that problem as well. We mostly, most of the time, use this knockout serum that is a bit less variable, but still there are many components that are variable. And so in this medium that we are using for cerebellar organisms, we do not have serum, for example. So that has helped a lot, I think, with the standardization. And um, and so, and yeah, and even the medium that we use to culture stem cells when they are still pluripotent has many components that can also affect the pluripotency of these stem cells. Same goes with the um, confluency we were discussing before. Uh, confluency that we use to keep this stem cell in culture. Um, the the, also the amount of time uh, that we keep these cells in the same medium because fresh medium will affect 
the pluripotency of these stem cells in a way and all their medium you know will be different so yeah these are all components that need to be under control to reduce the variability so a lot of this is just organic technology it has nothing to do with the cortex really it's like <laughs> developing that organoid technology is still a thing it's not finished yet oh, yeah. no, it's a still early in this field and so a lot of time is probably spent just among you guys when you're talking, just talking about that, not really talking about what you're discovering about the cortex, but what you're discovering about organized. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> yeah, it is true. And that's sort of what we have to do. So this explore, exploit continuum, we have, we have to walk this, like we have to develop as we're trying to figure things out, figure, thing, figure out novel biology. And that's what we were discussing before. This has to go hand in hand. And, you know, we cannot wait to get the perfect model before we can start doing, uh, asking questions about, about the biology. Uh, but then we have to be in that space where we can adapt on the go uh, and bring in the novel models to ask the, the questions that we're interested in better. So we're always that, that tightrope, uh, uh, that, that give and take a little bit. Uh, we, you have to be so comfortable with that. So one of the things you talked about were these assembloids, mm -hmm. which seemed exciting to me because you could take pieces of brain that normally connect to each other mm -hmm. and see if they do, and pieces of brain that normally don't connect to each other and see if they don't, and try to establish some of these rules that you think of as very high-order questions about development. Why do neurons connect to some neuron and not to some other neuron? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's doable now, even with today's technology. At least it sounds like you're doing it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, this definitely was one of the primary motivations when we were developing the assembly system. At least, let's say the hopes that we were we, we were going to be able to recapitulate some of this higher order phenomena, as you as, as you well put. Um, and it, we didn't know as we were building the system whether these things would migrate. Uh, we've done a lot of control experiments showing that it is this particular configuration of an assembly where you have the, the dorsal forebrain cortical assembly and the subpallial ventral where the things really migrate and move where they're supposed to go. For example, we've done uh, control assemblies where uh, it's subpallium, subpallium, things are not as attracted to each other, um, and things of that nature. So there is definitely that self-assembly principles that are maintained that are sort of un unraveled once you put these things to these two regions together uh, and uh, yeah I, I think migration and I've shown a bit of what happens after they migrate uh, we do get some level of synaptic integration and maturation and, and the data I haven't shown you that um, at the transcriptomic level we also detect changes Related to to the to this just this next step of cortical development that we think comes after uh, you know this migration where we're calling it the the early steps of cortical assembly. Um, yeah, so we 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 are we at that point we were happy where the, in terms of the amount of complexity we were recapitulating that we thought. Uh, okay, we can now do some disease modeling, and yeah, I spent a lot of time doing that with the, with the model. That that proved uh, proved fruitful uh, for sure. When you were developing this assembly, 
did you try or did you have to try like many different timing because at least what I did is just okay what you did 30 days just wait yeah. just copy what you did but mm. I guess everything behind the scene was not just easy that okay I just going to fuse the organic here and the neuron will migrate I suppose yeah we sort of you like a lot of over complicated things in the beginning because we thought how are we going to get these things to assemble do we need like a substrate do we need like a, cha a microfluidic chamber do we have to buy a, a 3d print things but then we ended up putting them together and, and then that day it just <laughs> and then it just they just fused it's just like okay that was just like we didn't have to spend like lab meetings and over lab meetings it's just trying to see how this will happen um and you know, the just, just nature of these things, they like to sort of fuse together at these early, earlier stages. So that was an advantage for us when we were developing. Um, and then the rest uh, just sort of happened after that, yeah. So if you, if you don't push them up against each other, but you put them near each other, would axons grow across the gap? Uh, I think others have shown that that is indeed possible. Um, yeah. Maybe Georgia can talk more about that. Yeah, yeah. So there are a few papers that have shown that um, it usually, you know, you will need to. Um, so there are papers that have, for example, placed two organoids in two different chambers, and then there is a, a channel, uh, you know, that that uh, unites the two chambers, and then it, you know, you will need to put a, um, a sort of um, a matrix or something that, like matrigel, for example, that in which the axons can grow, but they do they do that. So that has been shown specifically for cortical organoids. So you get these cortical-cortical connections. Um, so yeah, that's definitely something that happens. The problem with that approach is that sometimes also some other smaller neurons may migrate, you know, and, um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, that's definitely an approach. One things we are working on in my lab is to try to so usually this type of experiment have been done in static condition. So you get these organoids in, in a device and then they need to be static, right? Because if you have them rotating in a, in a flask, you will not be able to um, grow these axons, long range axons. So we, in collaboration with another lab at USC, the McCain lab, we are trying to think about strategy to have these organoids in static condition at the same time, keep them well perfused and oxygenated. So this is something that we are, you know, are actively troubleshooting and working on. So the axons won't grow if you're rotating the, I'm trying to understand Well, they could, you know, I mean, as, unless you have them fused, right? Uh -huh. Which is a great way to do it. But then if oh, you want to share, yeah, so yeah, you will hurts. break the, the axons, uh -huh. right? Yeah. I see, but if they were growing in, a, in that, in a gel, they might be okay. Yeah, but yeah. Right, uh, if they are in static condition, they're sitting in uh, their chambers, and then there is a gel. They, they will do. In fact, when you do the fusion, don't you stop doing the shaking because you're worried that they'll come apart? Yeah. So at least because I think you are not using shaking. Yeah, we don't shake. So in general, I shake the organoid, but when I'm going to fuse them, I just put it in a static condition, and she was saying, mm -hmm. and I wait at least like. Then there is two weeks that they are really fused, and then I put it back okay. to the second. Okay. Because you know you can't just do it from up. Uh huh. Makes sense. So I let my mind soar a little bit. Uh, can I? And imagine one of the developmental phenomena that's really attractive is when one part of the brain's 
pattern of electrical activity influences the development of a target. Mm -hmm. For example, the retina activity affects the superior folliculus development. So would it be possible to, to see that kind of thing? Can you impose patterns of activity on that, yeah. these, and use that as an experimental variable? Does anybody try that kind of stuff yet? Yeah, so we uh, so in my lab we are actively pursuing this, like trying to establish this visual system on a dish, so trying to connect retinal organs with thalamic, with cortical organs, and try to see how uh, light stimulation. So that we haven't done that, but that's the you know the the goal. Uh, hopefully, will work at some point. See how that will affect you know maturation and development of the other brain regions, how light and so changes in activity. So autonomous activity in the retina often drives yeah. development before yeah. the retina yes. the eyes are open. Mm -hmm. yeah. So do you see that kind, those kinds of waves in, in So we haven't have? really reached that point, so uh -huh. I cannot answer, but... Uh, that could be also interesting. For example, there are some patients with epilepsy that they have photosensitive yeah. uh, epilepsy. Uh -huh. So it would be good to have like organoid from this patient, have like the retina, the cortex, and see, then maybe we can trigger the epilepsy just flashing light. Yeah. And what we're thinking of, I mean, we're a brand new lab now, setting, gearing up to do all these things. So, but one of the, one of the ideas that we have is to sort of circumvent developing novel assembly by just introducing optogenetic tools to the, to the forebrain assembly networks uh, to sort of um, recapitulate this ongoing activity coming from the periphery, like thalamus, etc., um, and uh, uh, just trying different chronic stimulation paradigms uh, in a cell type specific manner to see uh, the contribution coming from uh, one cell type in terms of the activity and then its consequences on the other. Um, yeah, so the number of ways you can think about this question. So, of course, I just keep repeating that classic. Uh, <laughs> neuroscience questions about brain development, but the organoid is used mostly by you to ask newer kinds of questions than the kinds that people used to ask. Mm -hmm. So specifically asking about the roles of individual genes, uh, of which there seem to be really a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so uh, what's the interface between those two? I mean, uh, you know, obviously you could take a genetic disease and ask what's going to be changed about the development of the organoid, which seems like a good starting place for that kind of stuff. But if we, if we were seeing these really complicated things that in development, like specific connections or something, then that same approach would allow you to address the genetic origins of those things mm -hmm. that, we, that we can't do. So is that the... I mean, just from listening to you, I think that's what excites you uh, about the organoid approach. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say so. Um, you know, like piggybacking on that, I think uh, one of the really exciting things that is has been virtually undoable in, a, in other orthologous models is studying these disorders of, of polygenic origin. Uh, we know there's a lot of these common disorders, uh, uh, you know, are, are thought to be caused by uh, different SNPs on a lot of different genes, all of which contributing the small effects. 
but in, in, in total sort of leading to this clinical manifestations, things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, etc., that are uh, very common, but you know the studies have implicated that they have this polygenic origin, and just because of that, you're not able to take this many SNPs and introduce it to a mouse model. Um, and what the organoid models uh, enable you to do is to just sort of forget about trying to figure out where the SNPs are, but just taking the patient samples, deriving the organoids and then going directly to cellular molecular phenotyping. Um, and, and so that, that requires additional number of things that w the field still needs to sort of work out in terms of scalability and throughput. Uh, but that is at least for me uh, a very exciting uh, sort of like the, one of the next steps to pursue because, yeah, because I think they're very uniquely suited for this kind of thing. So that's a very practical, that's the interface to the very practical side of it, which the study of cortical development has not been mostly addressing disease, up to this human disease up at this time, but your approach is really focused on human disease. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, questions, does anybody in the audience have something? I have one. <clears throat> Great. So on the other end of the spectrum of development is aging. So what kind of opportunities or challenges do you see in using the organoid model to uh, study aging or age-associated disease? You want to say? <laughs> so if you ask me about that, I feel that organoid models are great to study more like embryonic development and maybe not as good at as uh, for aging or this kind of stuff. That is my point of view. But it's also true that just, uh, it's what people say, that just being in a vitro system, that is a, a stress for the organoid, so that maybe in that context, you can model more aging-related stuff. But I feel that they are better model for more developmental diseases. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I would add that, um, however, what is coming up is that also these neurodegenerative disorders that obviously are associated with aging do also have um, very early developmental phenotypes. So this is something that is happening. So I think that's very a very important opportunity because at the end of the day, if we want to intervene on these disorders, we may want to do it that that you know earlier than later right so i think that studying that these early um, phenotypes for neurodegenerative disorders is very important and this certainly is a model that you know these models give that opportunity aging starts embryonically mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. i mean at least neurodegenerative disease yes <laughs> yeah sorry sure so uh, you've already touched on a couple of uh, topics related to this, but I'm sort of curious about in the future, like trying to build more than one system at a time, like eventually possibly up to the level of a whole brain, um, and sort of the pros and cons you see of, say, building the cerebellum over here and a cortex over here and then fusing them versus trying to build the brain at once. Like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, 
So these initial models, organoid models that uh, emerged around 2013, 14, uh, <clears throat> use these protocols, uh, they're called the unguided brain, brain, human brain organoids, where you see this vast diversity of cell types that emerge in these models. Um, yes, they were variable, yet it's still astonishing how, you know, uh, how much of this diversity is just intrinsically encoded in, at this, at this uh, stem cell level, and then it sort of unfolds. So definitely the capacity is there. Sort of what we have to do, uh, if that's definitely one of the avenues, um, is to, to tackle this variability and to understand the rules by which this diversity em emerges if you were to in, uh, 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 include no, none of these extrinsic factors that, that we usually include in this guided protocols that a lot of us talked about today. Um, and I feel like that's, that's very exciting. I still believe that these early models hold a lot of hidden biology and uh, these early rules of morphogenesis are still encoded in them. So understanding those principles uh, might get us a little bit closer to what you're suggesting in that um, maybe not the whole brain, that's a, that's a stretch, sure. even, even 20, 40 years from yeah. now. No, but, yeah. Fair um, but just to reproducibly produce this large diversity that, that we don't really do in the region-specific organoids, but to be able to do a multi-regional organoid in a reproducible manner, I think is within our reach. Uh, 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 yeah, we just we just need to uh, to understand what really guides this this is emergence of diversity a little bit better. Okay, I mean, I guess I had one other question. Like, is there sort of a point at the development of the organoid where the neurons, I guess, cooperate is a bad word, but sort of where they form enough of the environment that they reinforce the growth of the organoid? Um, yeah, I, I believe that's exactly what happens in this unguided protocols. I mean, Georgia used these protocols more so than I did, so maybe you can also... Yeah, also something that I wanted to add is that an advantage of this self-patterning organoids is that... Um, so we do not use any mor morphogens on inhibitors of these very important morphogen pathways. And that's an advantage when we want to do disease modeling because you know, there are like the type of um, inhibitors we use, like WINT inhibitor, mm -hmm. for example, SMAD inhibitors. So these are signaling that are also often affected in, you know, in these neuropsychiatric disorders. So we are risking with these protocols that use this signaling pathway to, you know, hide some of the phenotypes. So by using these more self-patterning approaches, I feel like, you know, this is something that um, would be very valuable because we may, you know, uncover some of the phenotypes we are covering with, with this. So, um, yeah, so that's something. But um, so instead of maybe playing with um, this morphogen pathway, we could try to work a bit more on standardizing adhesion and modifying adhesion to pattern, uh, regionalize, to regionalize these organisms based on their adhesion properties um, instead of messing with this morphogen signaling. So this is something also, I think, it's quite interesting avenues. There's, there's also um, still a lot of room for optimization and exploration in terms of the extracellular milieu because mm -hmm. I believe 
most people are using nature gel, which I think is like a, something that is cancer cells yeah. secrete, which doesn't seem very normal to me, at least in the early embryo. Mm. And I believe there's also groups that are experimenting on more like matrices that are yeah. more conducive for embryonic neural development. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that could be very interesting too. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, yeah, it would be nice to use matrices that are human specific, right? And then, yeah, and then something that is less variable, like matrigel is really ill-defined. And um, so, yeah, there is a lot of room of, for improvement in, in that space as well. Yeah. So the, uh, the other topic that sort of comes up in organoids is just the sort of personalized medicine aspect of it. And I don't want us to quit today without talking a little bit about that mm -hmm. and the, the prospects for actually making that uh, mainstream. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think, from listening to you, I'm getting the idea that this is an idea that's, that's um, going around that isn't actually happening with real patients. But is it really happening? Are these organoids being used for part of actual treatment for real people today? Yeah, so we are, um, I think most labs working with organoids are um, using patient samples, samples from actual patient, and you know, we are generating these organoids. And so the idea there is definitely to use these organoids also to uh, find therapies and to test therapies. And I think Fikri can maybe, uh, yes, presented very, very cool uh, data about these, like um, more that work that is more closely to translation. So maybe you can mm -hmm. talk about um, yeah, so there's definitely, I mean, I think when, you, when you're talking about personalized medicine, what you're getting at is one drug, one patient, sort of getting a disease atlas of, of an individual so that we can sort of curate treatments just based on that individual's profile. Um, and that's definitely one of the dreams. Um, and I mean, are we, there's, there's definitely very interesting insights you can gather about disease. Uh, but getting to the point where we can take someone's cells, N01, and do uh, our usual pipeline and getting this reproducible set of phenotypes and then we can say, uh-huh, based on these metrics, this is the dosage I mean, Jenny was, was sort of getting after that, right? So this is really the dream. Mm -hmm. We're definitely, there's a lot of legwork to be done to get there. Um, I, I feel like a very cool sort of um, uh, uh, space to look at is this um, primary Hans Clever's uh, um, uh, group did a lot of work in this gut organoids. These are not stem cell-derived organoids. These are derived from patients. Yet they, they brought this technology in the Netherlands, right, uh, to a point that they are able to take these organoids, gut organoids, and bring it to the, to the clinic and do drug screens and really find a, a concordance between what they read out in a dish and what the patient will respond to. And this has been such a successful strategy. Granted, they're not stem cell drive, they're still organoid in vitro models, but they're primary tissue drive. Uh, but this is, this is a space to look at when, when, when we're sort of like 
dreaming about this personalized uh, medicine. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of the, the issues with reproducibility and what are we actually modeling, what else do we need in these models, all of those questions will have to be addressed before we can get to that level of granularity with uh, phenotyping, I guess. See, so I wasn't completely clear on what stands between us now and that for cortex. I understand, like maybe it's already in use for some other organs and other disorders, but let's say Alzheimer's disease or um, uh, or childhood epilepsy. What, what I, I, think another, I think another possible application that I have heard of, and I think we've heard examples here, is that many of the of many of these some of these mutations are rare or even ultra rare and my understanding is that a lot of drug companies are not focusing on models screening assays for some of these you know because of obviously they it's difficult to do clinical trials mm -hmm. yeah. so potentially these models you know, be, could um, fill the gap for these rare or ultra rare Mm -hmm. disorders mm -hmm. in a way that still balances the profitable aspect and the you know that whole pipeline where you go from basic science to drug discovery yeah yeah it is what you were asking so it is not very sustainable at the moment right to grow millions of lines and organoids from different lines and to do drug screening of them on them but um it hopefully in the future you know we'll have technologies that will allow that so that's the limitation at the moment. But I also think that these type of approaches help us focusing on also on convergence. So it's true that these are rare um, disorders or you know very rare mutations if we think about the population in general. But then many of us are actually looking also at convergence. And so I think that's something that is much more um, you know, also attractive for pharma that may, and so it could, I think it could be very important in the future because if we found something that has com, com, a convergent signaling pathway or something convergent target for multiple mutation, then it will be easier for pharma to invest on, you know, developing drugs for that. And this you can only find if you, you know, you have a human model with the human genetics that can capitulate this complex genetics of these disorders. Thank you. That seems like a happy ending. Yes. It's <laughs> a happy prospect. So thank you, Jenny and Vanessa and Georgia and Vikri for joining us today. Uh, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.